Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberate.it using the discount code PODCAST. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberary. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another awesome, fun show today. This is the 401 Access Denied podcast. You have myself, Joseph Carson, located here in Tallinn, Estonia. It's the first time, it's, it's a long time since I've been traveling. I actually think it's now the longest period of time I've been in Estonia, nonstop without travel. But really happy to have another exciting show for you today. We have an exciting guest on, which we'll uh, introduce you to shortly. Um, so my name is Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Dicotic and Advisory CISO to several governments and critical infrastructure around the world. Um, I basically... Um, located here in Estonia, and my co-host of today is the awesome Mike. So, Mike, do you want to give us a little bit of background about you? Yeah, sure. Mike Rowan, uh, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cybrary, uh, located in DC, and um, really excited about today's episode. And we have Chris Kubeka joining us, who's also uh, helps out around the place with uh, Cybrary and our content as well. So, really, really glad to have her on with us. And I am Chris Kubeka. And I love OT. Um, <laughs> I, I, I got interested at an early age because my mother was a robotics programmer for assembly line manufacturing in the automobile industry. Uh, and I love the idea that uh, you can take technology in bits and bytes and make things move. And who doesn't want to move the world, right? I do. Um, and uh, so... Um, some of the things that I'm working on right now is I do advisory service for several governments as well, uh, also NATO and the United Nations. And I'm currently working on a very interesting project for part of the European Union to set up a uh, purely proactive security team to hopefully avoid major incidents from occurring because once you get to the cert level, that means it's very reactive, right? Mm -hmm. Yay, emergency, great, <laughs> come out, oh no. Um, and instead we're setting up a prevention team to hopefully uh, minimize some of those incidents, so. Interesting, uh, that proactive is a key word there because <laughs> yes. we're, we're so used to, in the security industry, we are such a reactive uh, you know, people. Uh, we are the firefighters of security. We tend to only respond when things happen um, rather than, and, and one thing I think, I remember I, used to, I, I every year I attend the search symposium events here in Estonia. And one thing that's always missing from those events is never talking about the proactive side of things, never talking about the, even the successes. We don't even like talking about successes because we don't want to put ourselves out there in a the target. So I'm really interested. That's, that's a very key area is really looking at proactively looking at defenses and mitigating risk against OT. So Chris, you want to mention about what, what is really the proactive side? What, what does it you know, entail? Well, um, what it entails is gathering a lot of different pieces of information 
and putting them together, verifying the data that you get, as well as uh, using your trust networks, both mm-hmm. formal and informal. I'm a big believer in informal trust networks, such as uh, various volunteer uh, technology groups. Uh, mm-hmm. One in particular, the CTI League, Threat Intelligence uh, League, where mm-hmm. they've been uh, proactively defending hospitals and some medical workers because... Yep. Certs just don't have the capacity, and some countries may have a cert, but they're not a very mature cert. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, Tanzania, uh, where I used to spend a lot of time, they've got a cert website which isn't encrypted, <laughs> and they don't have a cert team. Yay! <laughs> wow. And that's you know awesome um, because they do a lot of mining of things like mm-hmm. gold and rare earths and plutonium and uranium, you know, little things, little things yeah. that other people might want to get a hold of, and and. Uh, most certs don't really have the time to be very proactive because, again, they're putting out the fires. Mm-hmm. And if you can, uh, you know, kind of flip the the script and try to alleviate some of that, then uh, it's my personal belief that uh, you will see a lot more um, countries as a whole mm-hmm. be able to make their cyberspace safe. So maybe for those who don't know, uh, we've mentioned a couple terms, OT and certs. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we should, you know, introduce those or what those are, um, Chris or, or Jeff? Absolutely, um, Chris, go ahead. Yeah. Operational technology. Now, it might seem like this foreign, strange <laughs> set of words, and you're like, oh, but I don't know what any of that is. Well, um, it can be something uh, as like a power station. It could be your water system so that uh, when you uh, get water out of your tap, it is actually clean, just not in Detroit. Um, it could be uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, mm-hmm. uh, for instance. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm glad about living in the Netherlands is we're the second largest food exporter in the world for a country of 17 million. There's a reason why. It's because our agriculture is uh, top-notch technology-wise, but it's OT. So you've got robotics, you've got drones, you've got automated systems, um, all functioning in a very, very small space, because trust me, the Netherlands is kind of small, and able to do these magnificent things because of technology. And that's actually OT, uh, operational technology. It can be um, security stations in police stations, in hospitals, in private security companies. It could be uh, portions of a lab as part of, say, a smart hospital, because everything's got to be smart, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, all of these different systems that are set up even uh, to control things and do things with a series of programs. Mm -hmm. If you have a fancy uh, schmancy espresso machine like I do, I got one a few years ago, best choice ever. Um, it's set up to control, move, and do with a series of programs. So I've got a piece of OT in my house right now. So it can be from really big to really, really small. That's yeah. all around us. Yes. And absolutely. And some of the things, even back to, to, some people don't realize as they're walking and doing their day-to-day you know, jobs and, and life, is all the things around us, you know, from the streetlights. Yeah, that, traffic, you know, traffic like, lights. Traffic lights, so when, when they come on, how frequent. Um, even here in Estonia, is that um, during the summertime, it's every second light that they have to reduce costs. And then at wintertime, they change it based on the seasonal because it gets darker here. Right. So they also have it programmed and automated to really deal with you know, the light and what time and season it is. Even things like conveyor belts. Um, when you get into, you know, you go to the airport and your baggage comes out, all of that in the background is all automated basically through OT. 
um, elevators. You you can I think it's escalators and elevators and you know, uh, lifts in UK. <laughs> Just trying to get the right term so so our international audience gets to know what we're talking about. Um, but even when you get into to to uh, an elevator, um, all the controls, everything from the stop the floors is all through OT. Um, everything that we do from basically car to car communication, weather systems, um, sensors. It's all around us, and we sometimes take it for granted. Yes. Uh, but what's really now happening is, is that um, the impact and the, the significance of it is becoming more into not just providing the, uh, the city around us and the, the, the functionality, but also it's now becoming more into our homes as well with things like you know, your, your uh, espresso machines or your vacuum cleaners or your light bulbs or your home security system, your automation. Everything we look at automation as well. Um, that's really you know, playing a part in, in OT. And I remember even back, I mean, some of the projects I worked on um, from even the early days, which was um, in the run 1999. So yeah, I'm pretty old in this industry, even go back further than that. But in 1999, one of the things uh, that I was working on, it was when Nokia phones became really popular. And they first came up with a data connection through edge computing and you connect them and one of the first things that we had done with that technology was we actually, uh, in, I was responsible for the ambulance service uh, in Northern Ireland. And we put into the ambulances, defibrillators and EPGs, and we connected those to mobile phones. And when an accident happened, basically, you know, the, the patient or victim got into the ambulance. They were put on those readers, machines, and all that heart uh, ratings. That was all sent through back through a fax through those mobile phones back into the emergency room so that doctors could already analyze the patient before they got there. And these are some of the life-saving benefits, you know, that a doctor can already analyze prior to them arriving, you know, five, 10 minutes. That can make a big difference to saving someone's life. So this is what we see a lot. Um, and I think it's really important. And, and one of the other things that, you know, Chris, you mentioned about uh, the CERT teams. You want to also mention what, what CERTs are um, yes. as well. So uh, CERT is a computer emergency response team. And somebody set off fireworks. Uh, and, um, a bit late for 4th of July, isn't it? <laughs> well, you never know with the Dutch. They love their fireworks. <laughs> love them. Pull up a picture of, you know, Amsterdam during New Year's. And it looks like a war zone, uh, basically. But uh, certs are very interesting. It started with Carnegie Mellon back in the day. And uh, nowadays, there was a, the UN loves these acronyms, GGE. A group of governmental experts uh, wrote a report July 2015, five years ago, report age, that said, hey, we like this idea of these computer emergency response teams, but we also like the idea that states have to take you know, some sort of active mm -hmm. role to defend their, their ICT and critical infrastructure. So we're going to get the states to agree, state member states, that every member state should have a computer emergency response team. Uh, and if there's some major issue with critical infrastructure and one country um, could use the help of another country, whether it be data or uh, technology or people, uh, we'll use our formal networks under various lovely treaty names uh, to get that information in those people and those resources. And that looks great on paper, yeah. right? You know, happy, happy, fun time. Uh, and it's all magic. And it will because the world loves to cooperate with each other. All the countries really <laughs> love countries, cooperating. Right? Cooperate. All the countries, yes, all right? we like sharing information, <laughs> especially ones that share borders. Um, there's a lot of cooperation, <laughs> right? Um, and by the way, what you hear right now is our automated street cleaning system. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> 
which has decided to park outside my window. Um, I, I love living in a city. Uh, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, the UN asked me to look at that report and uh, speak on you know, what some of the, the current challenges are and how they should more, say, rapidly share information. Mm-hmm. And again, this can be kind of difficult. If Iran is on fire, um, which it is, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that Saudi Arabia is going to go, yay, let's help out, right? Um, however, um, if you use informal networks, uh, such as the CERT networks and technologists, you can actually get through that level of bureaucracy. Uh, but what I, I told the UN was a cert is fantastic. Step one, you know, and step two, obviously try to mature those shir- the certs, right? right? Awesome. But by the time it gets to that cert level, you've already got a major problem. Uh, so you need to also look at the preventative focus and to already have those trust relationships built. Because it's one thing, again, with this lovely formal treaty system, it's another thing if someone can pick up the phone and say, I have the information that you need, and it doesn't take two weeks for the paperwork. I completely, one of the things that I got involved really early in this whole, because um, based in Estonia, uh, back in 2007, of course, we had the you know, famous nation state cyber attack against the, the government here and, and even uh, local companies and, and, uh, that were targeted. And one of the things that kind of evolved was the community came together. We created back then, which was basically the Kaiser League, which is the Cyber Defense League, which was basically citizens who were experts in their field came together in the defense of the country. And uh, really helping things like, you know, DDoS prevention, um, you know, doing a hardening of, of websites and companies' defenses. And it really evolved into that the Cyber Defense League became a continuous operating hand. Now it's, it's an it's a official... A group in Estonia that really is there to come to defense of the country when it comes under attack. And of course, that evolved in Estonia out of uh, the Estonian CERT as well, is also part, you know, that came out of that, which is more the, the official group that's there to, to react to things that target the country. And then the volunteers that are, you know, as additional resources when they become inundated under a major attack. Um, so it's, I think it's really important. One of the things I'm always questioning is that those defense leagues should not be part of an offensive team. That should always be part of the official government, uh, but they should be always there to help the, the countries out when it comes on. And this is also what we've done recently um, under the pandemic as well. I'm part of the Cyber Volunteers uh, 19, which is there to, to help defend the medical uh, uh, infrastructure as well. And this really gets into that it's about, to your point, Chris, it's about sharing information. It's about if you see something early, somebody else can make use of that in order to mitigate it. Um, and I think that's one of the ultimate responsibilities that we have is to make sure that if there's a zero day or a vulnerability, that other people have the ability to make the decision to, you know, eradicate that risk. And it even gets into some of the things. I, I don't know whether the, the, the policy or the, the standard you're working on has resulted from, I know that in 2007, 2008, we worked on what was called then was the talent papers, yep. um, which ultimately, you know, also then uh, Brad Smith from Microsoft came out with the Geneva Convention you know, yeah. version of the same thing, um, which I agree is because one of the mo- most important things we should have is, is sharing information because it means that if, if we have more cooperation and transparency, it means that cyber criminals, the, the, the real cyber criminals who are acting on, you know, basically malicious motivation have less places to hide, less places to, to operate. And this can then hold, if you have some type of Geneva Convention, 
then you have some type of accountability. You, you can hold countries responsible for failure to uh, prevent their citizens from doing attacks in other countries. Um, and this is really kind of where I think that absolutely some of the work that you're mentioning seems to be along you know, the, the later stages of what that early uh, discussions were. Yeah. Yeah. So prevention is important uh, so that we don't have a critical infrastructure digital attack pandemic. Right. And, and I think that's the important part, right? Like the, the, I think, you know, we started talking about all the different systems that, you know, OT touches, right. From your latte machine, which, um, you know, if somebody, or, um, you know, if somebody were to attack your, your coffee maker, that's one thing. Somebody, die. well, that's true. <laughs> you, would, you would, but what would happen if they hit your, your, your power station, right. And then all yeah. of your neighbors. So then your coffee machine still doesn't work. And you don't have electricity. <laughs> and we've seen that happening. That's the thing is that yeah. we've, done, we've failed to act on some of the most major incidents of OT in the past. Um, you know, okay, you know, I, I understand from a Stuxnet perspective, it was very targeted. Right. But we look at Ukraine. Ukraine has basically been the testing, you know, target um, of a lot of OT type of attacks. Right. And so we look at, you know, uh, 2015, December, they lost electricity to 200,000 um, citizens. And there's always an indirect impact. That One of the things is, so Chris, I've, I've categorized OT into two things. One is that you've got OT, which is data-driven, and you've got OT, which is kinetic-driven. So the OT, it actually is the sensors that's gathering things like weather or population movement or, you know, um, really that data analytical side to make quick decisions based on things that can, can you know, improve efficiencies. Uh, whether it being you know, water flows into or you know, water pressure or electricity. Then you get into the kinetic classification, which is you know, OT that actually has moving parts, things that actually can damage, whether it being you know, a furnace that is basically you know, releasing steam and opening up that steam so that it doesn't overheat and cause damage. So those are two types of classifications. And of course, when you have electricity, that has a kinetic output as well. You've got you know, hospitals that no longer have electricity. Um, ultimately, the, the one thing that, you know, when I was working in ambulance service, the one thing that kept me up at night was the potential of my systems, you know, potentially not running and ultimately having a death as a result, having human you know, fatalities. Um, so, Chris, do you want to kind of give us some, what's some of the, the things we should be worried about? What's some of the risks? Yeah, scare uh, us, please. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Scary time. Yeah, give so, me something to tell the kids at night. <laughs> yes. Ooh. So, um, uh, a, we have come to the point where we can no longer function uh, as a modern society uh, without OT, ICT, and the digital world. Um, even when I've visited uh, different parts of East Africa where you don't think uh, these things are affected, uh, at the same time, in order to do money transactions, you'll use the MPISA system. Uh, which uh, most people don't have bank accounts still, right? So how do you get paid? Uh, so we're absolutely dependent on these things. And some of the research I've been doing, uh, especially since the pandemic, um, I got to say it's scary. We'll do that is, in post. <laughs> right? Is the fact that it's accelerated um, uh, both ICT and OT and different forms of OT to uh, turn, be turned into remote services more and more. 
And that sounds like a great thing. However, it's not particularly a great thing if these things are rolled out very quickly and um, they are using uh, protocols that they shouldn't be using, technology that they shouldn't be using. I mean, obviously we still want our power to run uh, if people have to be isolated, but we also don't want there to be a problem with, say, a nuclear power plant or uh, something along that line, right? And uh, some of the recent uh, scans uh, use uh, ZMAP, the ZMAP project, where it can scan the internet in about 15 Mm -hmm. minutes, Mm -hmm. depending on how nice my ISP is. And uh, what I found is there's been a stark increase in um, these connected systems being set up with highly vulnerable, with known exploits in a very, very hasty manner. And one of the uh, recent scans that I did was I was looking at the top 10 countries with uh, both I- ICT and OT, you know, one, one and all, uh, systems connected to the internet. Uh, the United States has almost, you know, 48 million assets. And China does not have as many, but is kind of close. Um, and what I found was zeroing in on just uh, known, exploitable, vulnerable, uh, remote protocols in use, 59% of China's ICT infrastructure has these known exploitable vulnerabilities. Uh, the United States is sitting at 26%. Um, and so it, it's kind of disturbing because unfortunately human nature is go, 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 go. Oh, something happened. Whoops. Sorry about that. I think a lot of it is people are right. There's, there's these systems that were never designed to be on the internet. They were designed either before that was really a thing or in that with the idea that there'd be an air gap or all of these other things. And so, right. Sorry, I was coughing. I know exactly. Cause I mean, um, I think we talked to Josh Lespinoza who about cyber warfare and I can't remember we've talked, I've talked to him several times. He's also a friend. Um, So, but where we talked about like, hey, if there's, if the, if your protection is an air gap, like that's awesome from an attack perspective, like, great. All I have to do is close that gap and I win. So, um, but in any event, so I think there's, because of all of that, um, mm-hmm. these systems that were never designed to be on the internet, this rush to suddenly get them on the internet. And I think in that rush, people don't necessarily even think to yeah. look at the stuff, at this thing, like it's you know, what are the protocols? What are the things that are going to be suddenly, you know, one step away from being, being attacked now, whereas maybe it was two or three steps before. Yeah. We have to remember there is no such thing as Ergat. Where humans go, where we, we, we can be the link between there. Yes. So uh, we even look at, you know, potential how Stuxnet can into an intense uh, uh, reactor was basically, you know, most likely human walking, walking it in the door. Um, so I will say is where humans work and where we operate, there's no such thing as an air gap. Because you oh. might assume that it's network segmentation, right. but we can actually bring in things as humans. And it reminds me, uh, this reminds me of a fun story. So one, <laughs> oh, of, the, one, of, the engine, one of the search engines we use, of course, is Shodan, which of course is basically there to do, you know, search for, for machines on the internet with different person protocols. And I remember, you know, a num- number of years ago doing a uh, penetration test on a uh, shipping company. And one of the things we got surprised, we, we got shocked. One of the things we actually found on the, the, the search was actually one of the ship's navigation systems was actually appearing on the public internet. 
And this should not be possible. They're meant to go through the VSAT systems up to the satellites and back into headquarters. And we were just wondering, how is this even possible? It should not be possible. It should not be happening. So eventually when we end up getting into actually, you know, finding out what happened. So what happened was during these long voyages at sea, uh, the captain uh, of the vessel, I would say his nationality or <laughs> get them in trouble. But um, what he wanted to do was he was spend, to spend more time in his cabin on the internet speaking with his family. But he also wanted to be able to actually see where they actually, the, the uh, route that this vessel was going, the speed and navigation and so forth. So one of the ports, he actually went and got a long internet cable, plugged it into the actually uh, Actus navigational system, took the wire all the way down into his cabin, plugged it into his laptop. So one of the things was when he wanted to, because there was a, a law in 2009, which was called the uh, welfare law that meant that they had to have internet at sea and all these things. And, you know, so they had to have connectivity and communication. So the, 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 the uh, crew on the vessel now had internet access since 2009. And every time he made a Skype call <laughs> to his family, <laughs> he had actually created a crossover from his laptop onto the actually ship's navigation and engine room mm. so that so he could sit and see the destination of the vessel, but at the same time communicate with his family. And this was really ultimately, you know, breaking that air gap system. And actually were systems that were not designed to be on the public internet through human error and human, of course, of wanting to simplify things and, and make our lives better ultimately put a vessel at risk because any malicious actor who, who did that search and ultimately the only thing that was protecting it was a four-digit pin and we know how easy they are to, to, to get past. And ultimately, it could have meant an attacker could have made that vessel look like it was somewhere else or changed its direction. Um, and, you know, these vessels, these, these ships, it takes one to two miles for them to turn and stop. Right. Um, so these are things that, you know, that increase the, you know, the, the, the impact. So, um, I think it's really important, you know, a lot of these areas is mostly through human errors as well and configuration mistakes. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the things we also have to be, and a lot of these systems are also meant to have long lifespans. I remember watching a satellite decommissioning. Ah, yeah. That was, that was <laughs> impressive. Um, where basically one button that was designed 25, 30 years ago, that they were hoping that the button still did what it was meant to be doing <laughs> right, right. when they pushed it. And they also had to, you know, make sure the fuel was emptied at the right time and that, um, they moved it to a so-called uh, satellite parking lot in space, where they move it out to a certain orbit. And it was really interesting that you know these th- this was designed to be in operation for 20 years, and it already passed 25 years. And don't and forget is, that this, they have a, a technology cutoff date of several years prior to it even launching or going into, um, yeah. you know, so... Y- who knows how old the actual technology it was, was. It was 30 <laughs> plus years old before, because right. you're absolutely right, because the time before that even got you know, sent off in space, there was a time frame, of course, testing and validating and making sure it worked. And that took years, that whole right. life cycle. And this is what we really face is that with OT, they tend to be old, vulnerable, out of date, not patched, using legacy. I, I've, I can't tell you how many th- times I've seen XP still running, even 2000 and NT running in some of these systems. Oh, wait, should I stop running XP? (laughs) (laughs) Depends what you're using it for. (laughs) So so Chris, what's some of the the risks? Yeah, what's some of the risks that you see in in, in OT? I know uh, the potential damage could be significant. Yes. Uh, But what's Um, what's the risk? What's the failures that we have out there? Well, um, I think we also have to look at the supply chain and vendors. Now, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. 
Um, I think it was my fourth or fifth nuclear event. Mm-hmm. Um, Starting off hilarious. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> and I was uh, called in to look at a nuclear facility because uh, part of the system that automatically raised and lowered nuclear fuel rods, mm-hmm. um, one of them had failed. And what they had discovered was, although it was a, a pretty new system at the time, the vendor had actually installed a 2G modem into the system without telling them with a public IP address. And they obviously were very scared that somebody hacked into it and caused the system to fail. Mm-hmm. Luckily, there were no rods in the system. Great. And it uh, turns out the vendor's <laughs> response was like, well, yeah, we didn't document it, but um, basically we thought it would be a value add. Another word for we were testing it on you in this nuclear facility. Right. Um, whoops. And uh, they also told the facility that if they disabled it, uh, then they would void their warranty. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, Because fun fact, a lot of vendors, if you have a a maintenance warranty, Mm -hmm. they want the data from your system, right? And they will go, hey, everyone, let's tie all of our customers into this really old version of VNC to remote in with like no password, (laughs) no encryption, or just use the same credentials of admin admin or tech tech on all of our customers. Admin password is my favorite, but yeah. (laughs) Awesome. And you're like, but can I like update this? No, 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 you avoid your warranty. You're like, I've seen, um, and, uh, I've, and, yeah. I've seen that with so many uh, manufacturer contracts these days, especially when we're working on the power stations and, and uh, shipping where you've got engines that you, you're purchasing. Even the Tesla model is the same model. When you go and you buy those equipment, you're actually owning the physical equipment, but the warranty and the maintenance is tied to them owning the data. If you actually yep. look into those contracts, you must provide them data. And in many cases, as you're saying, it's actually online connected data and rather than saying it's offline, but we'll extract it and give it to you when we need to, that these are connected. And I did, I seen the same with the ship management company that were actually the third-party vendor was using VNC to remote in and look at the systems. And you're just going, what? what? Where does your security start and end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it was just never a thought. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I I do understand that we also have to remember that the internet was never designed for security in the right. first place. Yeah. And many times these systems, uh, whether the hardware, the software, or the integration, uh, the people who design them are designing them for valid, legitimate use. They're mm-hmm. not thinking about people like us who might want to be a little bit evil, <laughs> right. right? And, you know, it's it's... You know, I, I sometimes wonder why I'm on this side of the discussion instead of being uh, perhaps a Lamborghini owning um, cyber criminal because there's so much potential. Right. And I could have paid off my house by now. Um, it's called morals and ethics. That's um, right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, you that's know. My weakness, my, 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 my uh, <laughs> evil is being moral and ethical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to yeah. your point about never being designed for this, like I remember uh, a long time ago, I read uh, Dealers of Lightning, which is sort of the story of Apple and Microsoft and the internet. And um, well, it's actually really the story of um, um, uh, HP, was it? Uh, no, um, Xerox Park. So it's the story of Xerox Park and the start of and all of that. And they were sort of talking about like email 
And I remember the story in there of like, well, what, like, it never occurred to anyone to secure email because like, what kind of evil monster would impersonate <laughs> someone else in a message like that? Because it was designed by academics, you know, for academics. These are just things that they don't, you don't think about. You think about it. Exactly. Um, I'm at least heartened by the fact that I think things have changed. I think we do think about security from day one on a lot of stuff. Unfortunately, we're building on top of so much stuff where that yeah. wasn't the case. Yeah, I yeah. think that you're absolutely right is that we're doing, you know, the security gets entered at the wrong stage. Sometimes it's not by design, it's, it's afterthought. <laughs> and it's, it's a good point. One of the things, even even we look at email, you know, email, when I started using email back in 93, whatever it was, um, it was really just a, a simple message. It was, a you know, you took a note, you send it, and you send it to a colleague. But today, it's so much more than that. It's your digital footprint. It's everything you do. It's all you use. It's your um, location information, your address. It's your password manager. Your password manager, you <laughs> essentially. So you, send it, you send reminders to yourself with the password saying, my password, oh, that's what it is. Oh, no, I just meant for the forgot password. You know. <laughs> reset password. Right, well. the people, password reset, right. Store, I mean, yeah. yeah. Some people are storing their passwords in their emails. Right. Um, awesome. <laughs> but, but this is what, you know, it's, it's always an afterthought. Sometimes even the tools and solutions that we create the purpose changes as well. The intent, you know, and also means that um, sometimes it, it bypasses the traditional security methods that we, we apply. So, so Chris, what 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 things would you recommend? How, how you know what what is the way forward? Um, what is the solutions, or what is the ways to reduce the risk in this? Well, I would say uh, educating, um, especially uh, the larger companies who deal a lot with critical infrastructure or even uh, property owners who own lots of buildings and things of that nature, right? Because they've got a lot of these different systems, is uh, their project managers, procurement, and legal department get a basic uh, level of security so that they can look at, yes, they want to go for the lowest bidder, but what is the risk associated with that? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, they want to sign this contract, but how is it going to bite them in the bum, right? Um, And so those parties uh, start getting included in the discussion because otherwise, uh, a lot of things won't change. The project manager, and I've heard this before at a particular bank, who um, would create those algorithms for fast trading and an exotic market. And the discussion was, hey, we, we actually need to like security test these. And the project manager is like, no, no, I didn't budget for it. I don't see what the need is. Then the next question is, do you know what these algorithms do? No, nobody knows anymore. Right. Awesome. Awesome. You <laughs> um, forget the purpose. <laughs> right? So if, you know, in the beginning, there isn't that discussion going on with, oh, maybe somebody could do this. Maybe we'll, you know, get our stuff hacked or we'll be put on the news or we'll have to hire an outside PR firm or we'll go out of business and we'll have to lay off all of our employees. Well, that's what um, I think is interesting is the larger organizations, I think, can, can deal with it better. They have more money to put into marketing and other things. You look at, just history has shown that they don't get punished nearly as much as companies that are a little bit smaller, that Get, you know, that just don't have that, those are the ones that go out of business. The larger ones, yeah, can solve it with PR, which is, I think, even more unfortunate because it, it, it doesn't put the, the responsibility in the right place. Yeah. But Chris, do you yeah. think things like GDPR yeah. and, you know, regulations or, you know, standards that's coming out have an impact to companies that are larger? Because now, um, you know, if they do have a breach and we've seen, you know, GDPR being hit with the likes of British Airways and, and Marriott Hotels with their reservation systems, with serious you know, financial penalties. 
Um, do you think regulation will influence these companies to, to make a change? I think there needs to be a certain level of regulation, but at the same time, when you put forward regulation, you also have to ask the question, um, how much do you want to pay for your water to secure that water infrastructure? Is a mm -hmm. hospital going to have to choose between ventilators or securing its ICT? Right. Right. So it also has to be done in a way that it's economical and people understand what the uh, end costs are actually going mm -hmm. to be. I'm also super cynical because in the United States, a lot of that legislation is going to be written by not the people you want writing non, that legislation. And so that's how you end up with, right, or, or technologists that work for the companies. Like that's how you end up with these situations where it's totally legal for a company to say, no, no, you can't tamper at all with this device. You do anything and it voids the warranty. And, it, and it's because there's laws in the US that sort of allow for that. And who wrote those laws? You know, you can trade it back. You can trace it back. It's... Yeah. It's just it's even yeah. even recently the the news that came out and uh, it was around um, that making vendors you know making sure that they don't have easy to guess passwords and I'm just going you know who's putting these together who who's right. who's coming up with these policies and rules and regulations and standards because what it means is that the, okay the vendor will actually create a more difficult you know to guess password but it's going to be the same in all devices. Right, it's going to be it's going to be the one, or, or it's going to be just a standard thing. pattern that's pretty easy yeah. to just, and it yeah. will be publicly available in, right <laughs> within minutes. Exactly. Right. So, so one of the things is I think is you know definitely you know better collaboration with experts. So you know having people like yourself, Chris, in part of those discussions and in, in helping direct you know the outcomes. Yeah, one of the things I've been advising several governments here in the European Union and also the UN um, is. It's great to have, and obviously we need health boards that advise the government made up of experts, right? Um, but you also need technology boards that have a, a, an advisory role with an actual voice mm -hmm. that aren't just academics. And I have to stress that because they don't think the way that an evil hacker does. Right. Um, you have to have subject matter experts. Uh, you have to have also components of legal and procurement and certain things like that. Uh, because all of them tie in. Uh, just as we plan for various other emergencies, we also have to face the fact that we have to plan for some sort of magic bingo word, cyber emergency, mm -hmm. right? Because um, otherwise, I mean, uh, Joseph and I have seen what happened at Saudi Aramco. And there were, you know, wide-ranging effects that happened beyond just the company. They uh, actually provided two-thirds of the mobile internet infrastructure. When they disconnected, it affected the rest of the country. They also provided the network, which was on their flat network, uh, internet and connectivity to a lot of hospitals, police stations, emergency, uh, like fire department and ambulances and so forth. And guess what? That was kind of turned off. Right. Um, so uh, we have to realize that uh, one uh, something that can happen in a company can have these wide-ranging effects. And rippling effects to, and others. Right. Yeah, we, we absolutely have to consider those. I think there's also needs to be just planning for the inevitable that that's, there's, there's no way to 100% protect against that. And so making sure that there's, you have some sort of government action plan, you know, what are you going to do when the power shuts off and you have all these hospitals and being able to respond to that quickly. Um, yeah, I yeah. think one of my favorite ones is, I think it's the CDC and the U.S. Army that both have public plans on how to plan against zombie uh, takeovers, <laughs> right? Right, right. And, and so you can read both of their plans and, and they're pretty kind of funny and cool, but they figure, um, 
Now, if you plan for the absolute worst, you, you should be prepared. Do they but take different not- approaches? For yeah. the zombie, I imagine the army's more about this. Yeah, a little bit different. <laughs> more, right? more a little offensive. Right? Less <laughs> looking for the cure and looking to repurpose them. <laughs> right? But they don't have any of these plans put forward for what happens if there is a worm uh, that goes around and hits a lot of these legacy devices using um, you know, some of these protocols. I remember the canna worm uh, or carna worm that did something mm-hmm. like this back in the day. Way, way back in the day. Must have been before I was born. And uh, some of these things uh, can operate on themselves like a virus, you know, Mm -hmm. going everywhere and infecting everything. And then suddenly you don't have internet. So how are the rest of us who are are being, you know, kind of safe and trying to work from home going to be able to work from home if we don't have any internet? How am I going to get other services? I'm in the Netherlands. There is no place in the Netherlands I cannot get internet. And I will die without it. But literally, we have to consider all of the OT that is absolutely dependent also on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things is that you look at the most necessity needs that everyone has today is one is battery <laughs> and uh, internet access. You know, what we, where would we be without, you know, Google answering all of our questions? DuckDuckGo. Uh, we should be using DuckDuckGo. Duck, we should be using DuckDuckGo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <For> privacy. <laughs> um, so, but but absolutely, I think it's you know it's crucial to know that yeah we, we're so you know it's so dependent and so entwined to everything that we do. Um, most people don't have hardline telephones anymore. We're right. we're all dependent on mobile communications, and without you know internet, mobile communications would not function. Um, and even one of, it reminds me of a, a great book that I you know, read a number of years ago, one of my favorites, which was Cyberstorm, which is all about basically this entire you know it's the the catastrophic event. Oh, basically being without electricity, being, you know, we look at if, if electricity fails in the major city, the basically just-in-time delivering, just-in-time manufacturing, they would run out of food and supplies within 24 to 48 hours. This, you know, yeah. we, we've been seeing the recent pandemic is that when you don't have logistic systems working and be able to function and operate with efficiency, that things and shops go out of stock very quickly. Um, you know, hence, you know, people is probably sitting around in massive amounts of toilet paper right now as a result of some of those things. Um, but this is where they can, is that the whole setup we have in that just-in-time supply chain, which becomes so critical, even fuel supplies to medical supplies as well, which we're facing right now, a lot of those challenges. Um, they're all connected. And this, this book actually goes through some of those examples. It's a great read. Um, and uh, highly recommend it. It's fictional, of course, right. but it gives you that. Yay, um, for now. Right, for now. <laughs> for, for now. <laughs> right. And I, I think that's one of those things that, you know, the, all of the, how much OT relies on other OT relies on other OT. You, you, yeah. Even talking about, you know, you're, you're talking about the split between the kinetic and then the sensors, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, even if I were to secure the, some of the, the kinetic side of things, if I go after the sensors, if I change what, um, you know, maybe weather information is being fed in. Suddenly, like I know um, around us, we, we get an incentive to have the power company be able to control our thermostat in our mm-hmm. house yeah. um, to save energy, right? Like if you're not home, we can do these things and blah, blah. But I can change what the, our power station thinks is the ambient temp or the outside temperature. Yeah. I can get it to do things with other, you know, I can have actual kinetic effects just affecting those yeah. sensors and what data is being supplied into the system. Absolutely. Sure. We, we did a test a number of years ago into data poisoning. So data poisoning is right, data poisoning. what we're talking right. so, so this is really where you get into. And we actually did a simulation DDoS attack on a data center. And it was actually playing around with the HVAC system that 
um, the servers were set up to shut down once it hit about 35, 36 degrees Celsius. Mm. And ultimately, what we did was basically just increase the heat. Right. And that ended up having a DDoS effect because all of the servers that started hitting that temperature had an automatic shutdown in order to prevent you know, failures and overheating and burnout of chips uh, and the board. So you can have, yes, there is a connected effect. And I remember even we looked at, um, it was the entertainment system. You know, I love Chris Roberts' uh, explanation, a lot of the, the entertainment systems from the airlines. And of course, his challenges were flying from his comments uh, in research. But we get into is that it's these sensor connections. It's the data sharing portion is that you might have air gap systems, but sometimes that data sharing can have influence. So if things like an airline entertainment systems, if it's on the same part of the network as what's the safety systems, let's say uh, air pressure loss or you know, cabin, cabin pressure drops, then that can have an effect actually into the actual main system, which actually then can, controls the planes uh, because it says air pressure in the cabin's lost. Therefore, basically, we need to descend to a lower lo- location. It doesn't mean that you have the ability to control flights and, and, and really, but it allows you to have an impact on the main systems through data poisoning, mm-hmm. through that data manipulation. Yeah, and that was one of the attacks on cars as well, was through uh, the entertainment system, uh, yep. was able was connected to the CAN bus, and then you're able to poison what's going on in there. And we'll probably talk about cars some other yeah, time. I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've, got, I've got my CAN bus sitting behind me here in the, in the show. <laughs> Yeah, but that, that's one of the big challenges. It, it was like when I was able to get into the Boeing systems mm. and into the flight control software and the aviation yeah. ID system, uh, both live and test, um, is they'd already had a problem with a sensor uh, mm. poorly coded that brought down at least uh, most likely three aircraft. Yes. Uh, there was actually one earlier uh, here in the Netherlands. And... Um, the, the problem is if you can get into those systems and then you can do any sort of poisoning, mm-hmm. manipulation, and so forth, then you can uh, mislead sensors. Yes. You can change right. the way things go. And our world is so automated that uh, even large aircraft, um, they are uh, driven or flown, I should say, a lot more uh, in a controlled manner, not involving a pilot or a co-pilot. And it tries to do all these lovely automatic things, just like my lovely espresso machine. Um, but uh, the chances of my espresso machine killing me is much lower than, for instance, you know, one of these uh, modern aircraft. Until it can load its own ingredients and grabs the, uh, yeah. the cyanide from yeah. the cupboard. Right. I think I insulted your espresso machine earlier, calling it a latte machine. I really apologize. Yeah. It's, okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. It also has the milk thing. It's okay. that fancy. It's it very Christmas fancy. One but, year. It's great. but even, you know, we're talking about espresso machines. You can even get into medical devices that does automatic prescriptions. Oh. And, you know, even, you know, IV treatments or whatever you might be getting, you know, in hospitals. Oh, I had a friend you know. who was telling me about, um, like, I think there's heart, um, yeah. the yeah, pacemakers, um, pacemakers, pacemakers that yeah. are actually like connect, like you can connect Bluetooth to them. connected to the, yeah, Bluetooth yeah. connected. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. scary John, proposition. <laughs> John Hopkins uh, made one of those devices and was eventually fined, which also brings up a good point. I, I live in the Netherlands. And we had the first, uh, say, cyber laws related to responsibilities of companies mm-hmm. and also responsibilities of security researchers, where if, for instance, I happen to find a wide gaping open hole in your systems because you didn't apply uh, general basic 
to best practices, depending on the level of criticality, mm-hmm. then um, I am not uh, prosecuted and you can't sue me. That's awesome. Well, and yeah, whistleblower, is there, it yeah, needs to be protected. Exactly. Absolutely. Is, there any, is there any move, movement towards also, if you find that stuff, holding you somewhat responsible for disclosing it? Uh, what they uh, what is in the guidelines is that you attempt to um, try to responsibly disclose it, but you have to use a secure manner. Right. And if the company uh, does not have a vulnerability disclosure program, this is one of the issues I ran into with Boeing because they actually have um, they take advantage of our Dutch tax system, so mm-hmm. they push all of their uh, money through the Netherlands, and uh, they did not have a vulnerability disclosure program at the time. Mm. And uh, so the Dutch government is looking at fining them currently for doing that. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, a security researcher can attempt to contact them, obviously mm-hmm. use it, you know, securely. So you don't want, you know, all of your proof of concept stuff out there or uh, personally identifiable information. But then we also um, have, luckily, uh, a, a mature cert system that can then intervene in the matter. Right. That's awesome. Because yeah, I remember going back a couple of years ago, um, when I was getting more in my days of daily penetration testing, we had a massive roundtable discussion and it was going into responsible disclosure about types of OT vulnerabilities and, and, and system vulnerabilities. And in the, in the room was, uh, we had Europol, we had uh, uh, certs, we had law enforcement, and we also had businesses. And the problem is that, you know, I'm really happy to hear that at least you have a, a kind of a proper whistleblower type of scenario because when you get into security researchers, all too often when they report these types of vulnerabilities, they end up becoming the target um, yep. of basically right. lawsuits. And they end up becoming criminalized by some of the, the gray laws that's around and become, you know, victims of, of being targeted because of disclosing potentially, you know, damaging uh, uh, vulnerabilities. And we see this all too too often. And I'm so happy that there's a protection because at the end of the day, security researchers are basically, you know, we need their help in finding these. And one, you know, there are actually many amazing people who are using their skills for good reasons. And they're putting themselves at risk in many cases to find these uh, vulnerabilities and disclose them. And I think it's important that they get knowledge because when we had this round table that the law enforcement said, what you're doing is, of course, you're in the gray area of the law, but what the best thing to do is um, disclose it anonymously. And of course, these people are putting in their hard time, effort, and they're not going to get any money. It's more about recognition, acknowledgement for their, their efforts. And I think it's really important that we actually you know, use their help. We work together because I think it's important to get security researchers and government agencies and officials and law enforcement and the companies um, that work together in order to provide a much more responsible disclosure um, efforts without yeah, I, victimizing those who's doing the work. Yeah, I mean, I find it mind-boggling that you wouldn't have some sort of responsible disclosure program, mm-hmm. some way for people to report things into you that's in a, you know, in a controlled way and you can handle and has a process. Um, was one of the first things you know we did after, or I did after I got here. We set something up and um, it's been great. Um, for all of the like annoyances of you know people reporting things that really aren't an issue, it's it's definitely paid off, um, and it's I find it hard to believe that uh, a large company wouldn't have have that set up. 
um, and wouldn't want to know. Um, and I think you were also talking about the laws. It's, you know, not bringing the gray area. Again, that gets back to what I was saying earlier, right? It's, it's illegal to tamper with like a DVD player because, you know, there's encryption in there and da, 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 da. <laughs> right. And so like, and so because of the, the laws, at least in the U S it makes it, it does make it, if you want to do some of the work that you want to do, it's actually illegal to do it. Um, or, you know, or criminalized in a way. And so it's, um, I find it frustrating from that perspective. Uh, I'm sure many, many people yeah. do. And that's why I look at GDPR. It's, it's digital rights management for citizens, personal information. Uh, right. And that's ultimately what, you know, the intention is, is that DRM has been abused against citizens for many years. And mm-hmm. now, you know, GDPR is, is uh, a DRM for, for the people. And I think that's definitely something, you know, that leverages. And I know, Chris, you were, I think, about some of the IP that you create um, that we create, it's, it's things that's in our heads. Um, and those are things that we own. Um, you can't, you can't put intellectual property in people's brains. Um, maybe Not the yet. content that gets outputted, but you get in the, the result, you know, the final result, but the mm-hmm. method of getting there, the data that's, you know, um, that's something that, you know, we have to protect and that's something that, you know, is people own. So bringing it to kind of round up a summary um, is that I think, you know, one is, you know, we look at OT is all around us. It's been all around us for many years. It's technology innovation, which is really, you know, making the communication and how these devices talk to each other, how to make decisions and ultimately making our lives a lot more better. I think that, you know, we have to take this with accountability and responsibility. I think it's really great to see governments and vendors around the world working to come together to provide some type of transparency and sharing a mechanism to reduce the vulnerabilities and exploits. And I think, you know, uh, Chris, some of the work you're doing around the proactive side, I think that's crucial. Right. I think, you know, we can't live in a reactive world. We have to think about the direction we're going. And I think that's really important. And, and Mike, to your point around responsible disclosure and the laws that protects those, I think is really critical. And organizations should have, especially OT companies, should have a responsible disclosure capability where they have an open door policy for researchers to provide them information that they find and, you know, not, and having protection um, of, you know, it's a whistleblower scenario that they're finding and discovering. So Chris, any closing thoughts, anything you want to, to, you know, share with our audience, um, our very international audience that we have, um, and, you know, what things that you think, what you, know, where's the future? Where's the direction we're going? What would it be like in a couple of years time? Well, I think more and more of us will be working remotely and having that option, which means that more and more things are going to be uh, incorporated into our daily lives. We're going to be looking at more and more uh, drone deliveries, robot deliveries, um, things that we can digitize to make our lives as easy as possible. And it's going to accelerate because of our current circumstance Mm -hmm. in 2020, which seems to be very determined to try to kill us. Um, so we're going to see a very fast acceleration, but I would, uh, you, you guys had mentioned buzzword bingo. I would be more concerned <laughs> with the acceleration, the security of the acceleration of the OT world than I would be with artificial intelligence, Bitcoin, and quantum computing. Did I miss a buzzword? Machine learning. Machine learning. <laughs> machine learning. Machine learning. Well, it's part of artificial <laughs> it's, it's intelligence. It's part of artificial right? intelligence, right? Quasi, right. Quasi-prime numbers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Forgot <laughs> about them from last yeah, year. The snake, snake oil. <laughs> was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I still love it. You know, oh, sometimes man. when I need a good laugh, I go back and watch it again. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 it's scary, hilarious. Um, yeah. Whew, that, that was something. But yeah, I mean... 
there are certain things, obviously, we do need to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically, we need to be concerned about the things that touch right now our everyday lives. And that mm-hmm. is different types of OT. Absolutely. And I did, I did see one, one time recently uh, here in Estonia, we have, we have the automated deliveries, which is the Starship uh, delivery systems. And we also have these, uh, uh, was it smart connected uh, scooters? <laughs> and it was one, there's a great image. I'll have to share it with you. <laughs> that they're fighting with each other. <laughs> it, was, it was almost like, you know, the, the, the uh, robot wars. <laughs> it was like two, two devices trying <laughs> yeah, to get yeah. past. It was quite funny. So Mike, yourself, any closing words, anything that you think that, you know, we should have as a, as a kind of reminder or, or summary? No, I think we, we've summed it up pretty well, but I do think, you know, just recognizing i think it's there is a lot of responsibility on the on the com- on companies to set up as we said responsible disclosure programs doing testing bringing security people in to every step that it's not enough to just sort of rely on your supply chain to say yeah no we've got it secured or here's the documentation i mean i've i've looked through plenty of sock 2 reports and been like okay that's all well and good but it doesn't explain how specifically you do this this and this and i have questions and concerns that that are not addressed in this. So you can't just have, oh, well, we have all the documentation. We have everything we need. There needs to be people really looking through that and advising all the way across. It's technologists, it's security people. Um, and yeah, those, that, that cross-section of security technologists that looks at things of how does it break? I mean, as an engineer, I know how to build things really well. Um, and I found you know most software developers are good at building things. Very few are good about thinking about how to knock them down or how they might get knocked down or, or so on and so forth. And so um, there's a definite different mindset and getting those people involved in these, in these discussions and decisions is a, is a critical thing. Absolutely. Collaboration and communication and uh, privacy and security by design is is the crucial things that we need to get to. Yes. Yes. So awesome. So it's been a pleasure. This has been a fantastic show. And hopefully our listeners have uh, really been educated and had a lot of fun and, uh, um, you know, tune in sometime soon. We'll have the buzzword bingo for sure. We'll we'll come up with the buzzword bingo and see see who wins. We'll have maybe (laughs) a a little prize at the end of it. uh, And maybe the audience can even join in. Uh, But again, it's been a pleasure having you both. Uh, Chris, amazing to to chat with you and and get your insights. It's been very educational for me. Um, So this show, we happen every two weeks. So tune in. Um, subscribe to us, find a way to, to get to, to, to get this uh, podcast um, automated and to your phone or to whatever device your preference is. Um, this is going to be one of the first in this series of OT. We will do another number of other shows that will go into things around elections and, and other types of uh, really interesting and uh, fun topics. Uh, but again, Chris, many thanks for having the show. We hope to have you on again soon and, and chat more with you. Um, it's been an awesome time and hopefully um, the audience will have lots of fun and uh, be educated. Happy, happy, fun time. (laughs) Take it easy. Great talking to you, Chris. I always enjoy it. Great talking to you. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.